the ultimate penalty when you're on these special operations units behind enemy lines in in lots of cases was execution the same thing happened to the cockle shell heroes hello and welcome to the aspects of history podcast my name's oliver webb carter and i'm the editor and today i'm talking with saul david and he's going to be joining me to talk about his new book sbs silent warriors sbs means special boat service and and as you may have got a hint of at the beginning he's talking about some of the operations they went on and it's really tales of daring do it's great stuff now this is the first part we're going to do a second part uh, where i'm going to be talking with saul about events of history that he's also written on and in particular we're going to be talking to him about the charge of the light brigade we're going to be talking to him about the zulu war and about the beginning of world war one so that's coming up in the second part next week so elsewhere aspects of history uh, we've had a few items go on our website um, you can find them on our home page it's all available for free on there so just head over and have a look it's aspectsofhistory.com and one article that's been doing quite well that is is really really good it's it's written by an author called Robert Child and he's written a new book called Immortal Valor and this is a tale that really it's amazing it's not been told before uh, he's written a, a, a blog post for us on it and it's I recommend you just head head to our homepage you can't miss this a picture of uh, a, a medal of honor winner and he's written a book about seven african-american men who were fighting in world war ii and were awarded the medal of honor okay so so far fairly standard but these medals of honor were only awarded in 1997 so over a million uh, african-americans served in world war ii and at the conclusion of world war ii not one of them was given a, a medal of honor uh, the America's hi highest award for gallantry and they had to wait 40 over 40 years before uh, Bill Clinton I think awarded them their medals in 1997 so he's written a blog post about one in particular uh, one, one, one medal of honor winner and his book is is describing that fight now it's interesting to note that I think it's 26 medals of honor were awarded to african-americans after the u.s civil war so after the civil war 26 african-americans got a medal of honor and when one thinks what and that was soon after so you know they didn't have to wait 40 years so one wonders why that is so that's a, a really interesting uh, piece that he's put up on the site for us. Elsewhere, I've heard of a new podcast out there, which I would recommend. It's from a lady called Deb Hunter, and she's runs this successful site called All Things Tudor, and her podcast is called All Things Tudor. And I don't know if I really need to explain, but it's All Things Tudor. So if you're into the Tudors, did you like Sarah Griswold's chat on Tudors in Love? Um, that's an episode I... Uh, early on second I think the second interview I did with Sarah Griswold all about Tudors and the courtly code if you're into Tudors head over to 
all things Tudor's podcast and Deb Hunter's got some great guests on there. I think the latest one is with uh, Susanna Lipscomb, who incidentally will be in the February issue of our magazine, Aspects of History. Anyway, I'm I'm droning on now, so I think it's time to head over to listen to my chat with Saul. And if you want to get hold of me, you can. I'm at OllieWCQ on the Twitter and the Aspects of History account is at Aspects History. But I do hope you enjoy our chat. Saul David, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Thanks, Ollie. Nice to be here. Uh, well, Saul, we're we're gonna we're gonna. I was just saying before we started recording, um, we're gonna we're gonna cover a, a few different parts of history because you've written well a lot of books and uh, ranging from the ninety early nineteenth century all the way to um, the seventies with that book about the raid on Entebbe, Operation Thunderbolt. So, so you've written books covering all sorts of different subjects. So I thought whilst I have you, I may as well take advantage and and speak to you a little bit more beyond your latest book, which is SBS, Silent Warriors. Um, and so, yeah, we'll start, we'll start talking about that. So this has quite an interesting genesis, this book, doesn't it? Because um, uh, you weren't the, I'm sure you were very high up on the list but you weren't number one on the list, were you, Saul? No, it was a it was a, a project that was originally taken on by Paddy Ashdown, who was, of course, a former member of the SBS. And I think it was very fortunate for me um, that Paddy was the first one to to pitch the idea for a book about the Second World War SBS because they're a very secretive unit. Uh, very few books being written about the SBS. Yes. And as a result, um, uh, they're very cautious about who they met. Of course, Paddy died uh, as he was in midstream. I mean, he'd already written a fair number of words for the book. And the question was, do we you know, end the project because he wasn't able to complete it? Or do we ask someone else to finish his book or start again from scratch? And um, it was quite fortunate, I think, uh, Ollie, to be fair in terms of how I how I came to be on the shortlist of one that I have both the same agent and publisher as as Paddy used to uh, and and that meant that the uh, the choice of of me as replacement was a you know is a pretty obvious one uh, it was really a question of whether or not the SBS would be happy with that arrangement and uh, having gone through a number of meetings I eventually managed to persuade them that I would I would take the you know I, I would deal with the project sensitively and give uh, Paddy his due uh, recognition in terms of starting it but what I was not prepared to do and I did uh, dig my toes in pretty pretty firmly on this one is finish Paddy's book he he's a very different writer to me I like his work very much but he he, he has a much more uh, close emotional uh, attachment to the unit and I felt it would be a very uneven book if I tried to finish it so the the agreement was I was going to start from scratch and actually interestingly enough do all my own research I noticed one or two people tweeting oh it's lucky Saul had Paddy's research to work with that wasn't the case. I, I, I literally did all my own research, even though I know he'd gathered a lot of material himself. So that's how it all came about. And, it, you know, it was a wonderful project, really, to to be allowed to uh, uh, 
work on because it meant that I had to have quite close access to the unit. I went down to meet everyone at Poole. Um, they don't open their doors to everyone, as you know. Uh, and they wanted to get a sense of me, but they also wanted, of course, to give me access once they were happy to their papers and really the current unit and give me a sense of, of the ethos of the unit uh, and how it hadn't really changed since, since the Second World War. So it was hugely privileged um, access. And, uh, you know, I've did they a, um, a, did they send you on an assault course or any kind of physical training <laughs> to, to make sure you were up to up to scratch? No, but they did put me in a um, canoe and also in the water, actually, in February of 2021, uh, in the almost in the midst of lockdown, very cold water. And they wanted to give me a sense of what it might have been like to operate in that way in the Second World War. And, um, you know, it was great fun. I mean, I had a great time down there and then, you know, and a very jolly evening in the mess after that. So. I think they they wanted to test me a little bit. I mean, clearly that you know I'm not I'm not my youngest any longer, Holly, and I'm not really in the kind of you know the, the stage where I could be carrying out some of the stuff they have to do as a matter of course. I mean, they're hugely fit, but they're also hugely capable. It's not just about fitness and courage. It's it's about problem solving really in the in the special forces, and they you know they're really singular people. And I you know I I found it very interesting and and you know and a great privilege to meet some of them. Yeah, it's it's interesting how secretive they are because I, I I mean I guess they're often mentioned in the same breath as the SAS, but they are almost more secretive than the SAS, aren't you? Because you, you you know there are plenty of books about the SAS, but less so on the SBS. Yeah, the, you you see the ethos in the Second World War is to, as they put it, to to arrive silently, unseen, and hopefully leave the same way. There's very much a sense that the SAS you know, kick in the front door, basically, and make a lot of noise. So the, the two units, modus operandi is very different. And the and the SBS tends to draw in characters who are very kind of self-effacing, very kind of modest. You'd hardly notice them in the streets, uh, but they're very capable, as I already explained. And and these type of people are, are the least likely to want to shout about what they've done uh, and to try and make money out of writing books, frankly, uh, which is why you see so few books written by SBS. There are one or two. But compared to the, you know, the scores uh, that have been written by SAS, it's it's really quite remarkable. So uh, uh, even the story of them in the Second World War, they guard ferociously, really. And, uh, you know, as I say, to to be allowed to tell their story was was a wonderful thing. And at my launch, which you were at, Ollie, I think you will remember um, the current chairman of the SBSA said, you know, really very moving uh, speech, actually, well, moving for me. I mean, he said, thank you for giving us back our history, because it's a very tangled story in the Second World War as to how they came about and, you know, and which bit of the uh, number of maritime special operations units they draw their um, uh, their roots from. Uh, and I was able to look at it coldly, dispassionately and, and come to the conclusion, well, there were multiple different strands, but here's the earliest one and here's the next most important one. And really identify three key figures. Um, Roger Courtney, who's really the father of the SBS. Um, Blondie Hasler, who, of course, led the Cockleshell Heroes raid. Uh, and, and the third person is the kind of least well known of all of them. That's Nigel Wilmot, who set up COP, Combined Operations Pilotage Parties, which of all three units, that is the SBS, the Cockle Shell Heroes and COP, of those three, you could argue that COP makes the most significant contribution to Allied victory because it, it does all the heavy lifting for the uh, reconnaissance of beaches prior to all those amazing amphibious operations, including D-Day. And they really do provide absolutely vital intelligence that makes a real difference. 
Now, so some of those operations are incredible because reading through the book, it's like, it's like it's boys' own stuff. You know, some of these raids are just amazing. Um, and one that struck me was, I think it was um, Operation Flagpole. Is that when um, General Clark is, is, is deposited on a beach in North Africa to go and have negotiations with um, some, some friends? Well, you know the story better than I. But, but this story is just amazing that, that I'm amazed that's not been made into a film because that was crucial in, in the Operation Torch landings in North Africa, just... Yes, and you you know that's a very good example, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But it's one of many. I mean, the number yeah. of operations that I was not aware of, you know, as a military historian of the Second World War, it's really extraordinary. So they they've very much gone under the radar. The, the the contribution made by the SPS. It's partly because there were different units. We know about the cockle shell heroes, but that particular operation was was carried out by a combination of SPS and COP. Uh, but it, but in any case, the, the, the mission they were trying to do is to get Mark Clark, who was Eisenhower's deputy for the torch landings. That is the first great amphibious operation of the Second World War and the first op opportunity for uh, allied uh, amphibious landings and the first opportunity for the Americans to, to get involved in the European theatre of operations. So it's an absolutely crucial uh, invasion. And what's happening with Mark Clark is that he's being sent in to do a deal with Vichy generals, basically senior Vichy uh, military men to stop the fighting when they actually land on, on, on Vichy France in North Africa. I mean, it's quite a complicated bit of history if you think about it, because France, of course, has been occupied by the Germans. And yet a bit of it is under French control, the so-called Vichy bit. And all their colonies uh, around the world, but particularly in North Africa, are also under Vichy control. They're technically neutral. They're sort of under the thumb of the Germans. And there's a real question mark when the invasion of North Africa happens. Will the French fight us? And in some instances, they do, uh, as it turns out, uh, in particular, and another of the uh, amazing stories in the book, Operation Reservist, which is the attack on Iran Harbour. But actually, this mission that Clark leads to talk to General Mast, who is uh, the senior co French commander in the Algier region, is incredibly successful. And it leads to enormous reduction in casualties in the in the landings in that vicinity of French North Africa. So it's an amazing operation. And he's basically landed from a submarine at night in canoes in very dangerous conditions, surf conditions. So. Not only was there a high chance that he could be drowned, there was also a high chance he'd be captured by the French, um, you know, because he shouldn't have been there, really. I mean, he was, you know, he he, he was infringing all the, all the kind of normal rules of diplomacy by carrying out these secret negotiations, which not everyone in Vichy France approved of. So it was a very dangerous operation. And the SBS's role is to get him and his advisors, and there are a number of them, to and from the submarine in these flimsy canoes known as Folbots, um, which do not stand up to severe sea conditions, as you can imagine, if you ever tried canoeing in sea conditions. And, and you know, first of all, you've got to give kudos to Clark for agreeing to go on that operation. Yeah, what, what rank was he at this stage? He's a, he's a major general, so he's yeah. pretty, pretty senior rank. And Mark Clark, of course, goes on to command the Fifth Army in Italy. So, you know, he plays a very prominent role later on in the war. And he could have disappeared beneath the waves during this operation. There is a very funny moment, actually, Ollie, where he... Uh, they're they're trying to get the canoes off after they've almost been captured by the French, uh, you know, and it's real kind of harem scarum stuff. But the seas are are so high that they can't they they can't actually launch the boats into the surf. They keep getting pushed back and pushed out of the boats, and and he basically takes off pretty much all his clothes. 
Uh, he's down to his draw, you know, his his underpants basically, his Gundy, drawers. Right. Taken off, he's taken off his trousers, and in his trousers are is all the gold that they were going to use to bribe people in North Africa. And those trousers get lost actually, and that gold uh, is lost. But he he effectively is eventually picked up thanks to the SBS uh, and deposited back in the submarine, taken back, and the negotiations continue. Um, really, thanks to the extraordinary ability of these uh, SBS. Uh, officers who are are leading this op, op, um, leading this operation. One of whom is is a man called Graf Courtney, who was the brother of Roger Courtney, so uh, the founder's brother. Um, you know, the two Courtney brothers play a key role in the early years of the SBS. Yeah, so so um, let's talk about that because they're both sort of larger than life characters, really. And Jumbo Courtney, I mean, he's he's sort of a from the pictures, he looks like a bit of a bull of a man, big big guy. But um, he, he's, he's sort of the main, is he the main, I know you've mentioned the three names, but he comes, he's such a big character. He sort of seems to be the main driver behind the SBS. Well, he's the, he, he, he is undoubtedly, I mean, he's, first of all, he's acknowledged by the SBS now as the father of the SBS. People who are not, you know, privy to the inner sort of thinking of the current units uh, might imagine that the cockle shell heroes is a more important story and that blondie has in some ways the father of the sbs that is not true and, and it's acknowledged today that uh, courtney is 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 the man and there's a good reason for that because you you just got to look at the dates the cockle shell heroes otherwise known as the royal marine boom patrol detachment were formed in 1942 courtney's initial group of full bottis that is canoeists is formed in 1940 so we're talking two years earlier and they're formed out of a commando unit um which is training in scotland courtney's got the idea that actually commandos are one thing but again they're going to make a lot of noise when they land and they're going to be a lot of them so much better to go in by stealth using canoes and he knows about canoes because he's paddled all the way up the White Nile River single-handedly in a canoe um, and he knows exactly what they're capable of he's a he's an expert canoeist he also went on his honeymoon interesting enough in a canoe so persuaded his wife Doris that uh, it, it, it would be a good idea for them to you know go paddling off down the Danube River but um, anyway the point is he understood how canoes worked and he could see the potential and it did take a while before he was able to convince senior people but by October 1940 he's given uh, the authorization to form what's known at that time as the Folbot Troop. And this becomes the Special Boat Section SBS. And, you know, interesting enough, that acronym SBS has been used for a number of different units. Um, so it can get quite confusing, but that was the oh. earliest SBS um, Special Boat Section. So so, so the SBS, um, I mean, I guess it's it's it doesn't have any connection with the SAS. Um, but I mean, the, the the name of it suggests they're so similar. But I, I guess you've talked about how they are. They are really quite different operations, and SBS is a lot more secretive. Um, but, what, but was there really, you know, presumably in combined operations, there was some kind of um, sort of reporting structure up? Would they have any relation at all? Or did they have a kind of overall? Yeah, no, they, it, it is. It's closer than you might imagine, actually. I mean, uh, but but actually, at one stage, it was a bit of a power grab. So Courtney creates this original SBS and he goes out to North Africa. And while he's there forming it in 19 or expanding it in 1941, Sterling, who of course is the father of the SAS, is doing the same thing for the SAS. So they're, they're growing alongside each other. And what happens towards the end of 1941 is that uh, Courtney comes back to the UK to form what, what becomes known as the home or number two SBS and leaves number one back in North Africa. Now it's at this point in 1942, as Sterling is, 
growing SAS in size, that he sees a potential power grab and he is able to take over the African version of the SBS. And, and that is what later becomes interesting enough, another SBS name, which is Special Boat Squadron, which operates in the Eastern Mediterranean. I mean, all of this can get quite confusing, but all you need to know to answer your question is at one stage, there was an overall commando um, uh, or combined operations group out in the Middle East that had a number of different units underneath it. And one of them was the SBS and one of them was the SAS. So at one stage, they were very much under, both under unified combined operations control. Then Sterling takes over SBS, then SBS gets its own independence back again in the Mediterranean. Meanwhile, there's a separate, that is Courtney's number two SBS operating in, in home waters. And so slowly but surely and this is why the story is confusing this is why the bloodline as the sbs put it in their modern handbook their bloodline is tangled it is tangled it's it's confusing and it's why they needed a, a second world war book to you know to make sense of all of this um now the big the big operation or at least you know you know probably one the most crucial operation that they uh, that they were involved in is the is the d-day landings isn't it the uh, operation overlord could you just talk a little bit about you know what they what they did to make that operation successful yes well they they got good experience from prior amphibious operations torch landings interesting enough i talked about um the operation flagpole which was the getting of uh, clark to and fro these secret negotiations actually their beach reconnaissance prior to operation torch it, it is not that successful and the reason it's not successful is because they haven't set it set up a dedicated cop unit at that point which is its whole point is beach reconnaissance so they're they're operating with pretty inadequate equipment and and you know without and without the proper um, resources in terms of submarines to allow them to do the job they needed to do. They learned the lesson from that. COP set up immediately after Torch, and it's in place for both the Sicily landings, uh, Operation Husky, and also the landings in, in Salerno and Italy uh, in later on in 1943. So it's got good experience, COP, by the time you get to Christmas 1943. And this is the first, I mean, amazing when you think about it, this is six months before D-Day, and yet the first of the crucial uh, COP actions uh, in support of D-Day takes place in on, on New Year's Eve, basically, 1943. And its job is to check on the firmness of the beaches, that the, the, the Normandy beaches, basically. Uh, and they send in these two swimmers. I mean, it's an amazing story because it's midwinter, for goodness sake. And you can imagine how dangerous and cold the seas are. Uh, they send these two swimmers in with, with, um, uh, with dry suits, but, you know, not terribly effective dry suits. And their job is to get onto the beach and gather important information. And that's exactly what they do. They take something known as an auger, which, which allows you to take a sample of sand. They take a number of these, these samples uh, and bring them back to the UK. Uh, and the scientists are able to conclude that the beaches will be firm enough for wheel traffic, tanks and trucks. And this is crucial information because if they hadn't been able to confirm that and they were concerned looking at the sort of geological survey uh, that, you know, vehicles might get bogged down and, and the invasion would have been a disaster until they can get the uh, the artificial harbours up and running. And that's going to take a while. So this initial movement of trucks off the beach is absolutely crucial and they needed that information. So. First of all, you've got that amazing mission, which is, of course, completely secret, you know, and was secret for many years after the war. And then followed up very shortly after that by an even more extraordinary mission to, uh, so that 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 mission was to the uh, the British and Canadian beaches. At the start, before January 1944, 
there were only three invasion beaches. We all we know from history, of course, that ultimately there were five, but there were just three at that point. One American, Omaha, as it became, uh, one Canadian, Juno, and one British, and that was gold. And they eventually expand with two more beaches. And one of the reasons they expand is because of the information that's brought back by the SBS stroke COP during these two amazing missions. The first one I've just explained. The second one takes place in January, 1944, uh, and it's launched from a midget submarine. I mean, this is an amazing mission. Midget submarines, you know, as you can imagine from the name, 50 feet, I mean, it's small, it's 50 feet long with a crew of three incredibly cramped conditions. But the beauty of the midget submarine is it can get very close in to the, you know, the, the, the steeply shelving coastline uh, of the channel. Uh, you can't really operate with normal submarines in the channel with with the SBS and their canoes. It, it's it's just the conditions, both in terms of the uh, sea conditions, but also the the depths don't allow that. So you need a midget submarine. And the same two guys who carried out the mission uh, on New Year's Eve also carry out this this mission, both by swimming from the submarine at night onto the beach onto Omaha Beach and gathering absolutely vital information about the. Uh, about the defences on Omaha, but also by observing by day through the periscope of the submarine and drawing sketches. And I mean, I've looked through the report that came back from that mission. It is astonishing the amount of information they brought back. And what was not in any doubt, Ollie, is what a tough nut Omaha Beach would be to crack. And two things came about because of this meeting. One, or this information. One, it confirmed that they needed to expand the number of beachheads, because if, 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 the Americans have been stopped at Omaha, which, as we know, they almost were. Um, you know, you can pretty much stall the whole, whole invasion. So you need to spread your forces on a on a wider front. Uh, but the other thing it did is is convince the SBS that uh, to get the troops safely to these beaches, if they were going to be strongly held and there were going to be certain strong points along these beaches, you needed to get them to the right place. They couldn't all arrive in one place. And, and so you needed markers on those beaches. And what, what actually happens on D-Day for the Canadians and the British is that they use these midget submarines to mark the beaches. And that's an amazing story all of its own. I mean, there are so many amazing stories. But the Americans are worried that the markers, these submarine markers will give the game away. And so they refuse to use them. And as a result at Omaha, it's a complete shambles. You know, the the invading um, landing craft all get pushed along the coast because of the tidal set and the bad weather. Uh, and as a result, they're all jumbled up and in the wrong place. And uh, the carnage on Omar, of course, wasn't entirely down to that, but that was a big factor. Uh, and, you know, a huge loss of life on, on Omaha, a really tragic story that certainly some lives could have been saved if, if they'd used markers, in my view. I mean, it's amazing the, the operations they were planning, you know, as you mentioned, New Year's Eve and, and in January of 44. So that's, you know, for what, for six months before the invasion. But had one of those, um, one of those operatives been caught, I mean, you know, the Germans were expecting invasion and, and their big problem was where, where would it, where would it come, come from? Had one of them been caught, I mean, that could have given the game away. Yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, they were well aware of that. And actually, the the Omaha operation was originally going to be followed up by more um, operations to gather more intelligence. And it's at this point that the planners for D-Day said, hold on a second, this is, you know, this is simply getting too dangerous. This was the uh, chief of intelligence for Montgomery for 15th Army Group who said, 
we need to shut down these operations now because if if as you've just said so it was a calculated risk that came off you're absolutely right it could have gone it could have gone very badly wrong now what they might have done in that situation is is send separate groups to survey other coastlines that they were never intending to attack to confuse the germans but yes it was a risk uh, and it was a risk they were prepared to take and it was a risk that that that, that paid off uh, and you can understand why the Americans were wary about marking the beach, because even if it's 24 hours before those subs had to go over a, a, a day or two before the actual operation, you know, that's enough time, of course, for the for the Germans to, uh, you know, to put in place defenses that are going to make a, a landing impossible. Yeah, I mean, when you when you know, I guess most people have, will have watched Saving Private Ryan and, and that shows how you know difficult a, a beach assault was. Um, but they, so the SBS, <clears throat> you've spoken a lot about their operations in, in Europe, but they were also very active in the Far East as well, weren't they? Yeah, this story all ties together, actually, quite in a quite a nice way, I think. Um, in 1944, Blondie Hasler, who's one of only two survivors of 12 men to set out on the Cockleshell Heroes raid, I mean, 10 of them die, two are... Uh, drown and the rest are, are are executed by the Germans. I mean, it's are absolutely horrific casualties taken by the cockleshell heroes. Amazing raid on on Bordeaux. Anyway, Blondie Hasler, who survived that raid, is then sent over to the Far East uh, to join Mountbatten, who's really been his patron. And Mountbatten had been chief of combined operations earlier, so he was very keen on on these these kind of maritime special forces. And he knew there would be a lot of amphibious operations potentially in the Far East as they began to recover lost territory against the Japanese. Uh, and so he set up effectively a combined operations over there with a special naval um, or maritime special forces uh, component. And this drew together all these different strands that I've been talking about, you know, COP go over there, SPS go over there, and so too do a new Royal Marines organization, although it's not called uh, uh, RMBPD. And Hasler initially is sent over to take take command of all of this. He he's actually ousted. You know, you you find through the story of special operations a, a lot of um, uh, a lot of egos really clashing against each other. A lot of people trying to you know go for land grabs, as I explained with Sterling earlier on in the story. Uh, and Hasler really effectively is is ousted from his position and is forced to stay on as chief of staff. That is chief planner, but he's no longer really get gets any kind of um, uh, active role. Uh, and, uh, which is a shame because, you know, he he <laughs> he was a hell of a leader, um, Hasler. And and Courtney's also sort of slightly ousted at this point. But but in any case, the, the units that they do set up there um, carry out a number. It's known, uh, its overall term is the Small Operations Group. It's based in Salon and it uses a lot of the tactics that I've been discussing, beach reconnaissance, uh, raiding parties, use of canoes to strike at the Japanese, both in Burma, but also in Malaya, and even as far as, uh, you know, even as far as Thailand, uh, which wasn't technically at war, but of course was an ally, a loose ally of the Japanese, um, uh, and down into Malaya as well, which they were trying to recover. So a lot of amazing operations. One of my favorites is, is on the island of, um, let, me, let me see if I can get this straight now, Sumatra, that's right. So on the on the northern coast of the island of Sumatra, they the job is to blow up a bridge. And it's a wonderful story because it's a bit of a bulls up, actually. I mean, not all these operations go, go to plan, as you can imagine. Uh, they're trying to find this bridge. They land from a submarine, which has carried them all the way across the Bay of Bengal. They land in four canoes their job is to get up to the bridge and blow it up seems reasonably straightforward but actually getting access to the bridge which is a couple of miles inland up a, up a you know a very narrow twisty creek fast flowing creek 
uh, means that they have to find a separate route to it and they have to carry their explosives all the way there. Well, they they, they make a real mess mess up on day one and on so but go back on day two. Luckily, they haven't blown the uh, you know blow, given the game away at this stage. And they finally get to the bridge, start start putting their explosives on the bridge when they get noticed by some locals who. You know, needless to say, they're kind of slightly concerned the locals are going to tell the tell the Japanese. So they take the locals with them down to the beach, um, and they persuade them. It's they? A, they, well, they persuade them. They they give, <laughs> I think, part threats and part cajoling them. <laughs> they give them chewing gum and you know a few bits and pieces to eat um, in in the hope that this will keep them happy. But trouble starts when Sidders, Major Sidders, who's in command of the SPS party decides that he wants to take one of them back with him to the submarine because he'll be useful intelligence for a potential landing in the future. And this guy, of course, doesn't want to go. You know, he's a local Indonesian. He's absolutely not getting into the... Minding his own business. Minding his own business. So they, they, they use various methods to persuade him, including uh, trying to knock him out and then trying to drown him in the sea or two, uh, as the officer, a man called Wesley, uh, he was doing the drowning, says to try and drown a little bit of life out of him. I mean, in effect, to subdue him. Uh, and this didn't work either. And this, the, the Indonesian bites Wesley's hand. And it's at this point that Wesley decides, as he puts it uh, in his diary, that, you know, they bullied this poor guy enough and they need to let him go. So he pats him on his back and sends him on his way. Um, a poor compensation for all that bullying, as he, as he writes in his diary. I and mean, it's, it's a sort of great moment. And then they get in the canoes, they're already late, of course. They're always late trying to home to the to the submarine, which, by the way, you know, again, sounds straightforward. Of course, it's incredibly dangerous and easy to miss a submarine, particularly at night. Uh, they're on their way back to the submarine and um, they can hear in the distance this rumble, 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 and then boom, as the bridge goes up. So it's it's been an amazingly successful operation, uh, which they pulled off uh, and they're all uh, picked up in the boat. Amazing. Now, now one operation that wasn't so successful, um, I think Operation Whiting. And I, I mention this because the photograph that I think, well, it's in your book, um, that is just a, it's one of the most famous photographs of the war, certainly of the Far East com- campaign, because I think one of the one of the servicemen was captured by the Japanese and was executed by them. Yeah, I mean, I I don't talk about that in any detail because it's not carried out by the SBS. It's carried out by the, uh, I think, I'm trying to th- remember, I think might, they might be known as the Z Specials. But anyway, they are they're really an Australian uh, special operations unit that had some British involvement, actually. So, I mean, that story is an amazing story. This is an attempt, I think, if I'm thinking of the same one as you, this is an attempt by uh, the Z Special Unit to sink um, <clears throat> Japanese shipping in Singapore Harbour. And they use what are known as um, sleeping beauties, which are motorized canoes, semi-submergible motorized canoes. I mean, absolutely mad piece of kit, which which was developed by the British, actually. Uh, and uh, it, it goes because I'm wondering because there was one <coughs> there was one where they um, they go into I think Singa- the right one because Singapore I don't remember Harbor, it. I think, is one they made a TV show about with Jason Donovan back in the late 80s. I don't know if you're familiar with this. And I think that's the one where they canoed from sort of virtually northern Australia or something, Borneo, all the way to Singapore, um, and then blew up Singapore they, they Harbour. Dropped on, they, 
they dropped off a little bit closer to that but the but the operation right. i'm thinking of is right. is um was an attempt to sink shipping in in singapore harbor yeah most some of them died were, were killed in firefights because they never actually get to singapore harbor uh, and some of them are captured and and they're later executed um by literally being beheaded i mean absolutely barbaric um uh, form of execution uh, you know and so some of the stories i, I suppose the point about mentioning that and one of the reasons i use the photograph in the book is to show the ultimate penalty when you're on these special operations units behind enemy lines in in lots of cases was execution the same thing happened to the cockle shell heroes the same thing happened to this is my latest work actually the the story of the airborne forces in the second world war the a, an attempt to knock out some of the heavy water uh, uh plants in norway in 1942 by paratrooper engineers led to a lot of those guys being executed. So what, after the commando order, after, after Hitler uh, promulgated any, any behind the lines troops found will be shot out of hand, it meant that carrying out these units was, carrying out these operations was incredibly dangerous. So you, you just imagine the sort of mindset you've got to have to be prepared to go on one of these lonely, dangerous expeditions uh, with the full knowledge that if you're caught, you might be killed. Yeah, that's mind boggling today. If you think about, you know, an operation where it's so often it seems in, in, in the operations in your book there, there doesn't seem a huge, not a high percentage of, uh, of success or su survival, yet they carry on doing it. They, you know, they, 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 they charge in. Yeah, they're very singular people. And as I said, they still are today, you know, the, 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 every now and again we we see a little glimpse of what the sbs are doing today as we did when they when they were used to take over that oil tanker and you know in, in it it's interesting after the event um people said well of course the 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 people who taken over the the, the stow so-called stowaways you know weren't terribly dangerous and it was all slightly exaggerated but what is not in doubt is that the idea that you you uh, land on a ship at night in difficult sea conditions it is by itself even if there's no threat on board that ship incredibly dangerous thing to do and you saw how unbelievably professional they were not only at, at coming down lines onto the ship from helicopters but also scaling the side of the ship which is they usually have two two main uh, means of of getting access to uh, maritime shipping but that's one of the key skills that the SBS has today which is which is um uh anti-terrorism frankly for in, in a maritime sense and and that's their role to keep britain's shores and shipping safe and how influential were the sbs obviously the navy seals are quite quite famous are they were they sort of inspired to, to set their, their group up well it's really interesting i i was contacted today by an american author who said you know i'm aware of your work uh, and i would love you to read and possibly provide a an endorsement for a book i've written about a, a about a unit called UDT. Now, UDT was underwater demolition teams set up uh, by the Americans in the Second World War to do a lot of the stuff we've been talking about. So that is their equivalent of the SBS. They are the forerunners to SEAL Team Six. Um, and it's amazing to think that no one's actually written a book about UDT. I mentioned UDT in my Okinawa book, um, and anyone who works on the Pacific will be aware that they go in. They're often thought of as just sort of clearing obstacles, but they were much more than that. They brought back vital intelligence. And I, you know, I'm really interested to read this book, you know, both, both because it's a companion piece to my SBS, but also because I think it's a bit of the story that's really been missing. Um, and it will allow uh, people like me, if I was ever to revise the Okinawa book, to tell a much, uh, much more fuller story, really, because I, I very much feel the story of the SBS 
his role in various strategic moments like D-Day has been underplayed by historians up to this point. And so I hope, obviously, my book will make a difference. And I think it's, you know, it's high time the story of the UDT were told too. So that's the end of part one. And so I do hope you enjoyed that. SBS, Silent Warriors, all about the special boat service in, in World War Two. So coming up in the next half with Saul, which I'm going to put out next Saturday, uh, that is uh, talking about Saul's other books. Um, and in particular, I'm, I'm already asking him about his books and more episodes, uh, key moments of history that Saul knows all about and is a great person to ask about. So coming up, I'm going to be asking Saul about who was to blame for the charge of the Light Brigade, the famous suicidal charge during the Crimean War. Uh, then I'm going to be asking him, why did the British get overrun by the Zulus during the Battle of Izandlwana? That was during the uh, uh, Zulu War in 1879. Um, and the, the, the Battle of Izandlwana, if you're not familiar with it, is an incredible um, battle um, and the British were completely destroyed by the Zulus and there is an extraordinarily good impressive sort of epic painting really which I think hangs in the National Army Museum I'll put a link in the show notes so you can have a look but it's really good it, it just shows you know the Zulus completely overrunning the British um, and then uh, finally I'm going to be asking him should Britain have declared war in 1914 or should they have declined to and let the French fight Germany without Britain? And that is a, a theory that's been advanced by some historians. And so I'm going to ask Saul what he thinks about that. And then we, we also talk at the beginning, um, at the beginning of the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit about a new venture that he's starting which sounds um, a bit fun, the, the military history club he set up. And then uh, we also talk about a brilliant piece of TV that he was in in the early days uh, of the 2000s, early years of the 2000s, when he was a, a consultant for a TV show called Time Commanders. Uh, now, we talk a little bit about that, so I'll put the links in, in for that for the um for the next episode but uh, Time Commanders was a fun show you might not have heard of it but more to come next week so anyway that's it from me and I do hope you've had a good start to 2022 and you've enjoyed the first few episodes we've had if you haven't heard last my previous one for this year we had um, I had Jeremy Paxman on so if you haven't heard that definitely worth a listen Mr. Paxman is uh, good value as ever. So if you want to get hold of me, you can get hold of me at uh, on the Twitter at OlliWCQ. So that's at O-L-L-I-E-W-C-Q. There's the Aspects of History account. That is at Aspects History. And then if you want to get hold of Saul, he is on the Twitter at Saul David 66 that's at s-a-u-l-d-a-v-i-d-66 so that's it until next week thank you and good night